from our standpoint, as the Office of Primary Care, we receive federal funding to do a couple of things. Part of that is focused on workforce. Like I've mentioned, that's one of the reasons why, why I find myself talking a lot about workforce is because that's part of our responsibility. But having that workforce in place to support primary care really means about getting access to care. And it's those primary services going out and being able to have contact with the provider, getting preventative care, getting access to those initial services that you would need, as opposed to, say, emergency health care. It's about being able to identify issues ahead of time and be able to, to address them up front before they become larger issues. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yalpala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, I speak with Ashley Moritz, the director of the Office of Primary Care and Rural Health at the Utah Department of Health. He joined the department in 2019 as a workforce development specialist and was appointed to his current role in February of 2020. The Office of Primary Care and Rural Health coordinates a range of federal and state programs aimed at improving the health of Utah's rural and medically underserved residents. Prior to joining Utah's Department of Health, he served as a senior advisor around global social performance with Chevron Corporation. Ashley also has a very interesting background in global health and development. He spent 12 years leading country-level programs that included public health activities on behalf of the U.S. Agency for International Development in Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan. We cover in this episode Ashley's personal journey and how that translates to the work he does at the Department of Health in Utah today. He also shares his observations on health equity as it relates to primary care and rural health in his state. I hope that you find this conversation as intriguing and inspiring as I do. I am really pleased to have my good friend Ashley Moritz on the podcast today. And when I first met Ashley, not only was I excited to get to know him, but that he has a tremendous background doing work both internationally and here in the U.S. And I think that uh, you guys are going to be in for a treat hearing his uh, story and some of the work he's doing. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with you, KP. Great. So let's um, just dig in. I really want people to hear about your background because it is quite interesting. You started your work doing work with USAID and work in international affairs before um, moving into this role. So maybe you can start by sharing with our listeners a bit of your career trajectory and what led you to the current role in Utah today. Sure thing. I mean, I, I'd sort of start on my journey when I was in right out in my first job coming out of grad school. I was working for New York in international trade. And I said, you know, what I'd really like to do is, is something more, something more international, something that really might benefit people around. And I found through a program called the MBA Enterprise Corps, got my first sort of dipping my toes into that really field of international development. So I went to Kazakhstan, spent uh, a, a year as a volunteer through this MBA Corps, working on a USAID-funded project. I spent, ended up spending two more years on that project as an advisor, helping to expand the activities throughout the country. That led to a job with USAID, like you said, the Agency for International Development in Tajikistan. 
I was there for about a year and a half, started looking more broadly within the portfolio of the type of work that USA does. That's health, education, economic development. Then went on and spent close to six years in Turkmenistan, also wow. with USAID. Okay. Before, uh, once uh, the government fell in Kyrgyzstan, I was asked to go lead a political transition project for USAID in Kyrgyzstan as they were coming out of uh, the, the crisis and the political crisis uh, in that country there. That ultimately spent about two years there before coming back to the U.S. in 2012. Uh, with job with Chevron. It was working and focused on social performance and the work that Chevron does in the communities was advising business units around the world uh, for there. And then in 2018, my wife and I decided, you know, after doing this work internationally for so long, really there's a lot of contributions that we can make back home. And so we, we moved to Utah and I was really fortunate to land in, in 2019 with our office, came in in the staff position, and after about six months, was selected to become the director for the Office of Primary Care and Rural Health. So um, it, that's been a, it was about two weeks before COVID started. So got to jump right in, uh, in, in the midst of another, another crisis that we were going through. Another crisis, right. Well, this is interesting. So tell me, because one of the things I, I would love for us to cover today is, you know, because I also have a background in global health and working in, in, in different countries um, in the African context and other parts of the world. And you start to see that when you spend that time working in those contexts overseas, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the challenges when we think about things like primary care, think about rural health care access. And so maybe you could tell me a little bit about um, your observations of some of the similarities and also the differences of thinking about primary care and rural health in the U.S., versus the work you were doing internationally for the U.S. Agency for National Development? Sure. I mean, the countries I mentioned that I, that I lived and worked in were all countries of the former Soviet Union. And one of the things that they were going through as part of their transition to independence was the, how to finance their healthcare systems. That was one of the things that disrupted their systems. And those were, they were largely state-funded, which is a real difference from here. But as you know, we still have challenges here financing the system, how we finance that delivery of care, right? So that's, that's one of the similarities that I came across. Another thing, though, very common in both places is getting a workforce in place that can provide those services. Mm -hmm. I remember having many conversations uh, in those countries, talking with colleagues in their departments of health, looking to try to understand how can we get providers to go work in rural areas? Uh, that's a, that's a real challenge. And it's one of the things, the first things that struck me working in the domestic context here in Utah, and it's not just common to Utah, but in, in places where there's large rural populations and so much of Utah is rural, how do you get those providers, uh, and sufficient numbers and the right kinds of providers into the area so that the populations can, can really get access to healthcare. Yeah, no, the healthcare worker issue is a critical one. And even looking at our broader health system and the crisis we have with healthcare workers um, in terms of the labor force, you can imagine, you know, we hear that conversation right now going on and there's a whole other dimension to that when you think about rural populations and, and the, the healthcare worker shortages. So um, that definitely is a similar theme um, that I think we see in both contexts. 
Um, how would you um, talk about just to kind of anchor us in terms of Utah? Maybe you could give some context. Some people may not know so much about Utah, you know, how or how healthcare is organized there and, and how we how to think about primary and rural care in your context. Sure. In Utah, one of the things that, that struck me and I sort of touched on this is the is the level, the amount of state that's actually considered rural. Uh, we've got 25 of our 29 counties are, are considered rural. Oh, okay. Um, and, but we've got about 80% of our population that lives along the Wasatch Front in this corridor um, around Salt Lake running north and south above that. So we've got about 80% or more of the territory is considered rural or, or more. I see. But only about 20% of the population lives in these areas. So we've got these big geographic areas without many people. And so it really presents a, a challenge in, in, in getting the infrastructure and the people in place to provide those services for the rural areas. Mm-hmm. And how do we think about, you know, when you think about access in that context, like, you know, obviously some percentage of the population would have health care insurance and maybe go to private providers. Um, and then you've got your Medicaid and Medicare populations. Maybe you could give us a sense of the lay of the land and how that intersects with kind of your role and your priorities? Sure. One of the things you mentioned Medicaid and and Utah expanded, went through Medicaid expansion back in 2020. And so that's been really helpful in in starting to help people get more coverage there. And with that coverage, they're able to access care, you know, have increased access to care. But even so, it's still a challenge, especially for people with lower socioeconomic status. That's really one of the things that we see and one of the challenges that we're working with, uh, even in the, in, in the urban areas. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the, the rural challenges, but even in the urban areas, um, those where we have, you know, populations um, with lower socioeconomic status, it's still a challenge for them. Mm-hmm. One of the things, though, speaking about, about, you know, our environment, how Utah, you know, will be addressing things, is that a little over a year ago, the legislature uh, set the Department of Health, who I work for, and the Department of Human Services, which provides a lot of those services for people on a pathway to consolidate. Okay. So we're, com- we're coming up on that consolidation go live date, which is July 1st. There, we've actually already put, we've, because we've had time to prepare for it, we've been really been able to be thoughtful about how we're bringing the two agencies together. And I think we've got really a great opportunity here to bring some of the work that we do, which has been supporting healthcare systems and looking at workforce issues with the service providers there. So I think that's, that's one of the real, I think, big opportunities. One of the things that we're excited about is being able to work more closely with our counterparts uh, in the Department of Human Services under this consolidated agency framework. Well, thanks for that. And it's uh, great to hear about um, the consolidation. And I assume that, you know, joining forces is going to really help you maximize your work and also what you bring to the table with the with the agency. For our listeners, I mean, I don't think it's often that people in healthcare really talk about primary care. I think we hear a lot more about rural healthcare, and we'll go into some of those themes in a moment. But could you, could you kind of talk about what exactly primary care is in the context of your work as the Utah Department of Health, and what are some of the priorities you're working on? Sure thing. I mean, from our standpoint, as the Office of Primary Care, we receive federal funding to do a couple of things. Part of that is focused on workforce. Like I've mentioned, that's one of the reasons why why I find myself talking a lot about workforce is because that's part of our responsibility. But having that workforce in place to support 
primary care really means about getting access to care. And it's those primary services going out and being able to have contact with the provider, getting preventative care, uh, getting access to those initial services that, that you would need, as opposed to, say, emergency health care. When you're, when you're on the other end, it's about getting access and seeing a provider and being able to take care of, you know, identify issues uh, ahead of time um, and be able to, to address them upfront before they become larger issues. Okay. So let's talk about workforce. So on the workforce component, how do you guys think about workforce? I know even in the international context, in terms of your number of physicians per population, particularly when you go into rural areas that, you know, you have a really unfavorable ratio. And I'm sure part of maybe what you're thinking about is that, but then there might be other cadres of healthcare workers you're thinking about strategically. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we do as the Office of Primary Care is looking at and identifying health professional shortage areas. Got it. So that, that's a federal designation there. So our office is that state level contact. There's a primary care office, you know, in each of the states across the country. And we look at the data and these kinds of ratios that you're talking about where there are primary care physicians. And there's three different categories around that, looking at primary care, physical health. Okay. There's also uh, mental health shortage areas and also oral health, dental health. So there's those three different categories and we're that state level contact that looks at assesses the numbers, makes the recommendations into HRSA, who then makes those federal designations. Once an area is designated as a health professional shortage area, there's a number of different incentives that can go along with that, that are unlocked when there's a shortage area. So that unlocks access to federal programs like the National Health Service Corps, mm -hmm. which, are in, which is an incentive program that provides educational loan repayment for providers who are willing to go work in okay. an, an underserved area. We also have state counterpart programs to that as well. So it's about, you know, first of all, identifying and understanding where those shortage areas are, and then looking at what we can do to help incentivize the providers to can work in those areas. So how has that challenge trended over time for your state? Are we, are you getting better or worse or how, how's it looked? And then I do want to also ask you about telehealth. We'll get to that in a minute. But how's the issue trending? So it's it's really interesting. We've just they've just gone through a big update of the looking at those provider shortage areas, and Utah's scores have actually um, have gone down, which means the degree of shortage has gotten is less severe, right? So it's it's opposite in that regard, but. I, I would say what that means is it makes it harder for Utah sites, clinics and sites to participate in some of these federal programs. And we actually don't feel like that's really indicative of the situation. We still have uh, shortages in these areas. And the fact that, you know, our ratio has gone down doesn't mean that it's any easier for a person to, uh, to get access to care. Okay. And some of those barriers to access to care, what do they look like in your state? So the big one, because we're a rural area, big geographic spaces with, you know, the where people and populations are spread out, transportation. Okay. How do, you, how do you get in to that? One of the things our office does is a, a primary care needs assessment, mm -hmm. looking at, you know, what some of those challenges are so we can then try to focus our efforts around those. So transportation was one. 
Um, another big one is health literacy, people understanding uh, their own health and some of the challenges that they're facing and even the importance of going to a doctor, right? One of the things when it comes to mental health, and we do have uh, mental health challenges uh, across the state, um, Utah has been a mental health shortage area. The entire state has been. We recently, some small portions of the state just lost that shortage area status, but still the majority of our state is considered a shortage area for mental health providers. And one of the things that, in addition to not even not being able to access that care, another challenge is just stigma. Right. People still, you know, a lot of times aren't comfortable going and seeking out care. So it's something that we're really trying to change and say, hey, it's okay. You know, just not just COVID, but I think COVID has brought out and highlighted some of the challenges that we're having with regard to mental health. And, I, and, I, and I'd like to think that people are, you know, hearing the messages is, that reinforce that, that thought that, hey, it's okay to ask for help. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Can you share for us some examples of programs or initiatives that you've been implementing around these problems that have had some success? Like what are things that you're seeing are, are working well that you're implementing in the state? Sure. One of the things our office does is we administer a state-funded program that provides grants up to $100,000 around the state to provide access to primary care services. So these grants go to clinics that are providing services. This allows them to serve populations. It's focused on underserved or uninsured populations. So it allows them to provide those services uh, using these funds for populations that they wouldn't maybe wouldn't get reimbursed for. I see. Okay, that, so it's bridging that gap. And what are eligible use of funds for those types of monies for a facility? Like what can they use that, th that resourcing towards? So those go for the direct provision of care. Okay. So, so these aren't grants for equipment that help them do that, you know, provide the services. These are grants that, and the funding goes directly to the, the provision of services. The, the sites that get the grants are, are reimbursed on a per encounter basis. Amazing. Yeah, that's really good. I alluded to it earlier, but let's talk a little bit about telehealth and, and di digital innovation. And we can talk about this both through the lens of primary care and also rural, but with the way you're, you're, you frame the challenge, I'm sure some listeners are thinking, well, how could telehealth, for example, support this type of challenge, particularly for rural areas? And there's been so much going on with broadband infrastructure in several straits to support rural. So curious to hear about um, what's going on in Utah in that domain. Well, like, like many other states, COVID uh, led to a real rapid increase in the utilization of telehealth. You know, there was, we saw really a lot of interest and the need for it. And, and people understood, hey, we can do this now. There, was, there, was, there has been strong adoption of it. I think one of the things that helped that was some of the regulations that went in, that opened up, that brought some changes to the payments for providers and the technology requirements. As we go forward and the public health emergency ends, we still are going to need to make sure that we've got those payment mechanisms in place so that telehealth remains financially viable mm -hmm. for people. But I, I think the other, the other big challenge you touched on is that broadband access. And we want to make sure that, especially um, in whether it's urban areas that have underserved populations or the rural populations that people have access to, to broadband to be able to do it. Because if they don't, if, just because the service is available without that access, without the ability to connect with your provider, it's, it's, 
you know, it's, it's not going to work uh, up to its potential. Right. So, so look, let's talk a little bit about digital innovation more broadly. So, you know, so many people are talking about the promise of digital health and, you know, coming out of, you know, or coming through the pandemic, I should say, we, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the use of digital tools to bridge gaps for these populations we're talking about. So, you know, outside of the context of telehealth, are there any other digital innovations that you believe can help support primary care and rural health in your context or anything you've been working on in that domain that you like to share? So, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's, that's really exciting actually is the work that, that you guys are doing, but then on health and finding ways to reach populations. So it's commu- communicating with populations wherever they are right. is, an, is an important part of this there. And I think that's, you know, finding ways to communicate meaningfully uh, with your patients is, is just is critical and, and foundational to, to any improvements in that. And so I think that's things you don't even have to have broadband for that. Using right. things like texting patients and reminding them, hey, it's time to come in and get your checkup, you know, there and sharing health messages with them are all things that we've seen and, you know, organizations and entities are piloting, whether it's, it's the sites and clinics trying to reach those populations um, or, or others, whether it's even the department, you know, where we've been sending, you know, communications uh, to people. So I think that's really one of the ways that we're, we're using those new communication technologies. And I should say you guys are using the new communication technologies to really leverage that and reach, reach people and, and, and reinforce those messagings and bring them into the system. Yeah. And I mean, definitely reaching people where they are and through trusted channels is, is critical in this type of situation. Tell me this, like in terms of indigenous populations, um, I assume you have some indigenous populations in your context. Does that work intersect with your office or is there anything that you guys are doing in that space? So we, we look to monitor the work that's being done there, but we do have, you know, we, there's the IHS, the Indian Health System, that works there. And we have a separate liaison within the department that works with the, the, the nations there and, and the work that they're doing. So some of the, the rural hospitals that we work with actually down in, in southeastern Utah specifically are very close to some of those populations. And Got so it. they look, they're, they're doing um, some um, uh, interesting things where the hospitals there, uh, Utah Navajo Health Systems is working closely with some of the hospitals uh, in southeastern Utah around that uh, to to make sure that they're serving their populations, but there's still uh, s- some some distance between the t- the two systems there and our work from responsibility. Got it. Okay. So tell me this. I want to shift gears. So this type of work definitely requires partnerships, given the nature of the challenge and the scarcity of resources in those contexts. Can you kind of help listeners understand? the different types of partners that you work with vis-a-vis the Office of Primary Care and Rural Health to help to support reaching um, the objectives that you're, you've described? Sure. We've got a, a number of different partners uh, across, you know, sort of the, 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 the system there. We work with the rural hospitals quite closely. Some of our federal grants, uh, you know, give us the opportunity to work with rural hospitals uh, in the state. But we also work very closely with the uh, Primary Care Association for Utah. That's the uh, uh, Association for Utah Community Health. They also work with the network of federally qualified health centers, the community health centers uh, across the state. So they're a critical piece 
of providing primary care services to uh, underserved populations mm -hmm. uh, across the state. So we work very closely with them. Um, we also, I, I mentioned through the primary care grants program, we work with, that's a broad network. We, t we typically provide anywhere from 25 to 35 grants okay. uh, during the course of the year. So that's going to other free clinics uh, that are providing services as well. We work with the rural health clinics, certified rural health clinics uh, around there. One of the things, um, I guess, as well, we've done, we got some funding from CDC uh, to support health equity in sort of the post-COVID context. Okay. Not sure we're at a post-COVID post, post right. state yeah. yet, but I we're transitioning. Are trying to find the right term for whatever this is we're in. Right. <laughs> that was the language that the, the CDC put around it, but that's given us the chance to work with some more community partners as well. Most of our work has gone to, to the clinics and the hospitals and those provider sites, but uh, this has opened up some opportunities to work with uh, some more community groups as well. So one of the things that we're looking to do as well is expand our work with community groups uh, and we're going to be uh, offering using some of the primary care funding uh, to provide community education and outreach grants. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to give us the opportunity to work with some new partners um, and leverage also the opportunities to bring community health workers into the fold. Into the fold, right. Which will really help with the workforce issue you've described. It will. I mean, community health workers, I mean, you mentioned trust and that trusted channel before mm -hmm. community health workers are a critical piece of the, the, the system there in Utah just passed in the legislative session earlier this year, a law that will help establish a certification process for community health workers. Oh, great. And so we're really excited about the potential for that to elevate the, the role of community health workers in reaching the populations that they live and work in and, and feel like that's going to be really an important tool, you know, and support mechanism. What would that look like, that certification? Would that be like in partnership with an academic institution or what? how do those um, type of certifications look? So it just sets out that there's a, a core base of, of education and, and knowledge around that. It's not going to be necessarily that you have to go through a formal university program, something like that. Right, because people would be concerned about cost of training or things like that that could become barriers very quickly. Absolutely. It's important that that not become a barrier and that certification not become a barrier to the work that community health workers are doing, mm -hmm. but it will bring a little bit more standardization to the work and so that they have, there's a certain base level of knowledge uh, and outreach, but those community health workers, we've already got a lot of them that are doing very important work in Utah. Um, and it's precisely because they're those trusted members of the community, right? They're, they're, they're living and working with alongside, these are their neighbors and the people that they see around. Right. And kind of building off this, on this theme of partnerships, I want to talk a little bit about leadership. So this season, you know, what's clear is to transform our health system. Um, we need the right kind of leadership uh, to get there. And so I've been asking all of our guests kind of what your observations are about the type of leadership that's needed to really help transform these type of issues that we're discussing and make healthcare more um, equitable and accessible for, for vulnerable populations? So uh, it's just an important issue. I mean, leadership, uh, we've seen a leadership in Utah been, you know, through the course of our merger uh, there with the department, between the Department of Health and the Department of Human Services. Our, our leadership has been very open to looking at 
new ways of doing work and working with new partners to make sure that really um, everyone in Utah has fair and equitable opportunities to live a safe and healthy life. So setting that out as our guiding principle um, there, you know, our, that's the way our leadership is approaching, um, you know, our merger and the way that we're responding to our populations. But a, a big thing that I, I also feel really strongly about is, is having diversity in our leadership, mm-hmm. right? And understanding firsthand that those leadership is bring, are bringing different points of view and representing, you know, diverse approaches and thinking around that. Uh, it's, it's very important. And ultimately that diversity within our workforce as well. And that's a real opportunity for that leadership is to make sure that we have a workforce that represents our population there, because there's lots of, lots of, of research that shows that people have better health outcomes when they're dealing with providers that look like them, have shared experiences and can relate to them. Uh, uh, in that level there. So I think it's really important that as, as we're, that our leaders are looking to reinforce that diversity, mm-hmm. um, you know, in our workforce as well. Great. I ask every guest this question and I'm always, I get a wide range of responses, but, um, I'm curious, why are you actually in on health equity? I've been on health KP because, you know, Hey, it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, Utah, when we look at Utah, as I've seen and gotten to understand the situation better, you know, when I first moved here, Sally said, hey, Utah has good health outcomes. Utah rates very highly compared to other states. You know, over time, we've been the healthiest state in the country. Uh, But as I've gotten to understand the situation better, I understand it's not that simple. We still have communities that are bearing disproportionate burdens of disease and they're having poor health outcomes while, you know, in the midst of being rated highly. So it's, it's critically important. You have families, individuals, communities aren't reaching their potential because of this. These have, you know, impacts their well-being, their longevity, their quality of life around that. You know, we have to do better. You know, we can, and we must do better around it. And, and that's, why I'm in on health equity. Oh, thank you so much, Ashley. I mean, I think you've made a really important point, which is it's all about these numbers, right? So on the one hand, we can look at a state like Utah and say, well, on aggregate, the numbers look great. But what we know about disparities is they can be very nasty and they and they can hide if you're not being intentional and looking out for them. Um, and so I really appreciate that that view and, and the important work you're doing. So, uh, Look, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned a lot. It's been really interesting hearing about your context in Utah. We'll, we'll look forward to, to seeing how um, this merger goes and, and wish you the best in the important work you're doing. Thanks so much, KP. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about what we've been doing. And, and thanks for the work that you do as well. Appreciate you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.